So if you were to go on an overnight hike, what would you need to pack? What's essential for an overnight hike? Let me see what's in this backpack. If you go on an overnight hike, you might need... Wait a second. You might need water. You'll need sustenance. I think that's pretty important. You'll need water and food. You might need... Shoes, hiking boots, but you'd wear them, they wouldn't be in your bag. And I think you'd need to pack a map, okay? So an old school map, this is a map for those of you who, who haven't seen one before. You, you can either pack one of these or a GPS on your phone, either one, that's fine. You'd need to pack these things for an overnight hike. Now, the Christian life is a bit like a long distance hike. It's something that doesn't just last a couple of hours or a couple of days. It lasts years, and for many of us, it lasts decades. And so it makes it all the more important that we pack what we need for the journey. We don't want to be left out in the lurch, not having enough food or sustenance on our hike. We need to be careful what we pack for our Christian walk. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul is showing us three spiritual resources that he packs in his metaphorical backpack. These are the resources that get him to his destination, that keep him going, that keep him focused with the same determination that he began with. So in other words, 2 Corinthians 4 tells us what we need to remember so that we don't lose heart in our Christian walk, so that we move forwards in our Christian walk with conviction, with courage, just as we started out. So last week we reviewed a few of those resources that Paul had. Um, We remembered one reason why Paul didn't lose heart was because he remembers that people who are unbelievers, they're blind to the gospel. But we also remembered that God has the power to unblind them, to heal their blindness. And so that kept Paul moving. This week, like I said, we've got three more essential spiritual truths to grasp if we're going to keep walking forward with conviction. So the first spiritual reality or the first truth that we need to grasp is from verses 7 to 12. And it's the treasure that comes from God. So verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Paul describes himself and Timothy here as, on the one hand, jars of clay, clay jars. Clay jars are cheap, they're fragile, they're, they were everyday utensils back in the day. They'd break, they'd chip, and you'd replace them. It wasn't a big deal. They were clay jars on the one hand. But on the other hand, there's treasure inside these clay jars. But what is this treasure? So look at verse 7. Paul calls it this treasure. And so it's referring back to verse 6. And it's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ that is the treasure that Paul speaks of. We spoke a bit about this last week, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what this treasure is. It's the most valuable thing that you have. I said this morning it's even more valuable than the the house you might own in the area. 
but obviously that doesn't apply to most of us here. Um, it's more valuable than your iPhone, this treasure. It's the most valuable thing you have, and it is the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus. It's when you see Jesus, you see God's glory, and you're, you're sure of that. That's what this treasure is. And it's not just head knowledge. It comes with, verse 7, all-surpassing power. And that comes from God. So Paul goes on to describe what this all-surpassing power does. Verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. As I said before, an ordinary clay jar is fragile. It would break with only light stress. But Paul here is hard-pressed. He's persecuted. He's struck down. Yet, he's not crushed. He's not in despair. He's not abandoned. He's not destroyed. A clay jar wouldn't hold up to such pressure. So how is he not crushed? It doesn't come from himself. This is the all-surpassing power that is from God and not from us. One commentator writes about this. If such a brittle vessel can survive intact the knocks and bangs that ministry uh, provokes, the credit does not belong to the durability of the pot, but to the sustaining power of God. This, Paul would say, is the only explanation of why he has not been destroyed by all his afflictions. The afflictions have caused some stress, fractures in the earthen vessel, but it remains whole because a divine glue holds it together. God's all-surpassing power that comes from this treasure keeps him together in the hard and difficult suffering that he's gone through. Let's stop here for a second. Let's think about what a community of people would be like, what, what the church would be like if it understands themselves as clay jars filled with the treasure of God. I think it's fair to say that we live in a pretty superficial culture where it's important to um, give off an impression, a good impression to other people. We want to give off the impression that we're not so much like clay jars, but more like um, a bronze, maybe gold-coated goblet, not a clay jar. We want people to think that we've got our lives together, that we're at least above average in the winner at life ometer. But the image of the clay jar smashes through that concern with reputation and having, uh, having a sleek sort of together life. Clay jars are rough. They're not sleek. They're not smooth. They're fragile. They're not indestructible. If we're willing to own our clay jarriness, we won't worry about giving off good impressions. Instead, we can be open and honest and sincere with each other because we truly understand ourselves to be the clay jars that we are. A church that truly understands themselves as clay jars will be open and honest with each other. But also, if we see ourselves as clay jars, it forces us to look to the one who has the power to get us through life's, life's hard times, life's difficult periods. In chapter 12, uh, Paul says these incredible words. Um, he quotes God here, or God said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul goes on to say, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, 
I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. A church that understands themselves as these clay pots filled with God's treasure will look expectantly to the God who has the power to sustain us, to keep us from being crushed by life's hard times, by the sufferings that we go through, from despair, from being destroyed. Verses 10 to 12. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So just as in chapter 2, Paul Paul was the aroma of Christ, here, Paul's sufferings are carrying around the death of Jesus. And it's the life of Jesus that's revealed in Paul's body. There's this very close correspondence between the apostle's life and the life of Jesus. But more to the point, just as the cracks in the jar allowed God's all-surpassing power to, to shine through, it's Paul's sufferings, he's carrying around the death of Jesus, that the life of Jesus shines through. And it's Paul's willingness to undergo the great sufferings that he has gone through. Um, it's his willingness to do that that gives the Corinthians life. Did you get, read that in verse 12? So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Paul's suffering for the sake of others. God works through Paul's suffering for the sake of others. And God works through our suffering for the sake of others too. It's so easy for us, just like it's easy for us to want to give good impressions about ourselves to other people. It's so easy for us to turn inwards um, when we go through difficult times to, to not want to share with others what's going on. But God works through our suffering for the sake of others. And if we keep them to ourselves, I think we're keeping God from working through these sufferings for the sake of others. So when we let people we trust in on our suffering, it helps others learn what it means to help carry each other's burdens. And God loves when his people carry each other's burdens. When we let people we trust in, we give others the chance to see God give strength in our weakness. And when we let others we trust in, you can help them learn, the person you're letting in, on what it means to live a dependent life because we know that in hardship often we're forced to live the dependent life on God that we should always be living. And so you're giving another person a chance to see what that dependent life looks like. When we let others we trust in, we give the others a chance to comfort us with the comfort they might have received from God in the past. God doesn't want us to keep our lives hidden from each other. He wants us to go through our sufferings and our difficulties with each other. 
uh, one writer was um, describing his wife, uh, his wife's ministry, and she suffers from chronic pain. But God has used um, all the pain and difficulty that she's gone through to help others. He wrote this. Uh, through her suffering, she now is always moving towards others' suffering because she knows the pain and the struggles. She knows when to encourage. She knows when to simply groan with someone. God has comforted her so that she can comfort others. It is all his grace in her pain. It is all his strength in her weakness. He deserves all the glory. And yet he still means to use her to accomplish his purpose of comforting others. Paul's sufferings brought life to the Corinthian believers. How might God work through your sufferings, our sufferings, for the sake of others? So that's the first spiritual reality, the first spiritual truth that we need to pack for the journey. The power for the Christian life comes from God, not ourselves. His light and his life shine through our weaknesses and our tough times. That's the first thing you need to pack. Second, God will not abandon his people. Now, this is verses 13 to 15. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Here Paul's quoting from the psalm that was read before, Psalm 116. In this psalm, the psalmist recalls a time when the cords of death, he writes, were entangling him. That's a really stark way of putting it. It was a period in his life where he was experiencing particular sorrow and anguish. He writes, I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. I was nearly being drowned by the difficulty of the period. But the point of the psalm is that God rescued him. He didn't leave him in the pit of sorrow and trouble. Paul quotes this psalm here to show that God will never abandon his people. Now at this point in the sermon, it's pretty clear that the Bible doesn't give a rosy-coloured view of life. The Bible is not ashamed to front up to the truth, the reality that life will inevitably involve suffering. For some people, great suffering. For others, not so great. But what's most important to focus on is God's commitment at this point. Is God's commitment never to abandon his people. Paul says in verse 13, Since we have that same faith, that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. The resurrection of Jesus is God's promise to us that he will never abandon us. Not even in our darkest of moments. If he's not going to abandon us in the, in the throes of death, we, we will rise. And he's not going to abandon us in those experiences of life that aren't that extreme, but are in, a, in a similar way, uh, dark or difficult. Uh, there are a couple of dark moments for God's people in the Old Testament, but right up there is the story of Joseph. Joseph was cut off from his father. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. And then he rose in the ranks in Egypt, only to be falsely accused and thrown in prison. You might remember he was forgotten by the cupbearer and so faced more years, more time in prison. It was a dark place. It was lonely. He would have felt hopeless, I'm sure. He was abandoned by everyone. But one of the major themes in the story of Joseph is 
No matter how bleak life looked, no matter how much he was sure he had been abandoned by God, God hadn't abandoned him. Joseph was reinstated as a high official in Egypt. And it showed us, it shows us, that God hadn't forgotten him. And this metaphorical resurrection of Joseph whispers of the resurrection of Jesus. Lying in the tomb, you might assume that the Messiah had been abandoned by God. But of course he hadn't. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. You notice there that this, this confidence, this conviction that God will never abandon him, leads Paul to having this, this fearless determination to speak. Even though the authorities at the time were trying to shut his mouth to get him to stop speaking of this Lord Jesus, he knew God had his back. God would never abandon him. And so he kept on fearlessly speaking. He knew the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise him. If God wouldn't abandon Paul in the grave, then there's no experience in which God would abandon him. And this gave Paul the fearlessness and the courage he needed to do his work of spreading the gospel. The saying that's true of Paul is, is true of us. So what's holding you back in your obedience to Jesus? In your speaking the gospel to others? I sometimes, in a silly way, am ashamed to speak about Jesus. Um, it's a small thing, but I got my hair cut a couple of weeks ago, and the, uh, the hairdresser asked what I, did for a, uh, what I did for a living, and I said, sort of boringly and vaguely, I, I work at a church. I, I, I sort of said it with a low voice. I could have said something like, I, um, I'm a minister of Jesus, I love Jesus, he's changed my life. I, that might be a bit too much. And I could, I could have said something much more like interesting. Not, I work at a church. And just like, you know, full stop. Let's stop talking about that. What stopped me in that moment from being a little bit more fearless in speaking about Jesus? I think it was this sort of strange um, uh, desire not to be seen as a little bit weird or something. Or intense or something. But if the news of Jesus has the power to change a life, that was last week. And if we know that God is for us, if God will never abandon us, if we know that, if we're sure of that, then I think our lives should show forth fearless obedience that characterized Paul's life. In verse 15, all this, he's referring to his suffering and his fearless gospel speaking. Verse 15, is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. That's a, a, a beautiful picture of Paul's sort of vision, why he does what he does. He, he wants thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. That's why he tells people the gospel. That's the second reality, the second truth we need to pack for the journey. God will not abandon his people. Never. No matter how much we feel that he, he has abandoned us in our hard moments, just like he didn't abandon Jesus, Joseph, he won't abandon us. So thirdly, the third spiritual truth we need to pack for the journey is 
that our future is way better than we can comprehend. Verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You could be mistaken if, if you sort of re, had a retake of that verse. Uh, Paul really did say that his suffering, his troubles, were light and momentary. Now, from any ordinary perspective, Paul's sufferings really weren't light and momentary. In chapter 11, he describes his sufferings. Let me read them to you. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from the rivers, in danger, uh, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. He goes on. He calls these light and momentary troubles. Now, this is a bit of a um, silly example, but when you're in the middle of a boot camp, as some of you were yesterday, and your shoulders are aching and your lungs are just working overtime, you're sincerely wondering whether you're actually going to survive these next 20 minutes. Your troubles at that moment aren't light and momentary. They don't seem like that. They seem heavy and long. But what you've got to keep in mind is how good it's going to be when you get home, when you finish the boot camp, when you think, oh, I'm so good, I did that exercise. I'm going to put my feet up, I'm going to have a healthy snack, and I'm going to enjoy the best rest I've ever had. What you need to do during the boot camp is keep in mind this glorious future of healthy snacks and rest. You need to keep that in mind. It helps keep the current present situation in perspective. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. Except, of course, for Paul, it wasn't a 50-minute boot camp. His his experiences were literally life hanging by a thread experiences. Yet he calls them light and momentary. The reason he can view them in such a way is because he's focusing on his future. He's looking at the present in light of the future. And I wonder if you noticed verse 17. In verse 17, it says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Did you notice that word achieving? It points to Paul's insistence that God works through suffering. That's what he does. He doesn't work in spite of suffering. He works through our suffering. In fact, our suffering in the present is in some way the means by which God is readying us to experience the weight of the future glory. That's an interesting thought. I'd love to talk to you more about that if you were interested. But I'll move on. I also want to say that it's really easy to think that Christians can be so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. You've probably heard that said before. That by me sort of telling you now to sort of think about or Paul telling us to think about the future it's going to somehow make us no earthly good but for Paul it's exactly the opposite it's by Paul keeping his eyes on God's future for him 
that keeps him motoring in the present. That keeps him moving forward in perseverance and courage and boldness. Because the future keeps the present in proper perspective, Paul has the power to persevere now. That's the function, well, that's the power of knowing the future God has for us. So verse 18, we fix our eyes on uh, not what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, it's very ordinary, uh, right of us and, and normal of us to feel the weariness of this world that's characterized by temporariness. It's, it's um, easy to feel it in our bodies and sometimes in other ways. It's easy to feel the temporariness of this world when we have many people we know who are sick or unwell or um, in hospital. Even today, um, it might be impossible for you not to feel this temporariness, this, this passing away world when, when you think of the fa- a father you, you might have lost or um, a broken family. But what Paul says is that we need to fix our eyes on what is unseen. And I think what better way to do this than through uh, C.S. Lewis's The Narnia Chronicles. This is from the last battle, the, the final book. The eagle is right, said the Lord Diggory. The Narnia you're thinking of was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here. Just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world, you need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures, have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course, it is different. As different as a real thing is from a shadow, or as, a wake, as waking life is from a dream. The new Narnia was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. And it was a unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. The unicorn cried, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little bit like this. And then the book closes. And for us, and for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That gives us a taste of our future. There you have it. The three spiritual truths that kept the Apostle Paul from losing heart. It kept him from from giving up. In verse 16 he says, Therefore we do not lose heart. 
Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. So for your Christian journey, for your decades of living for Jesus ahead, be sure you've packed these three things deep in your heart. Know that the all-surpassing power to live and persevere through the difficulties that we'll go through comes from God. It doesn't come from us. And more specifically, it comes by means of the treasure he's given to us. That most valuable knowledge of Jesus as being God's glorious son. The power comes from God. Two, God will never abandon you. Even through those dark valleys when you're, you're pretty sure God isn't there. It's not true. God will never abandon you. And thirdly, your spiritual future, your future is better than you can comprehend. And that gives us power in the present to keep on boldly living for Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have put your treasure inside of us, that knowledge of Jesus as being your glorious Son, our Saviour, our Lord. We ask that we look to you for the power to keep on moving forward, that we don't try to get it from ourselves, but we ask you, we look to you for the power to persevere, to, uh, to be kept from being crushed or destroyed. Father, we, we ask that you plant it deep in our heart, a trust that you are with us and will never abandon us. And we pray finally, Father, that our future, that's beyond what we can comprehend, is, um, is also clearly and um, strongly stuck in our souls and imagination. Amen.